0: Today, I'm continuing to teach on David. Let me just go back to um, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, the last thing that I was teaching, I was contrasting Saul and David and Absalom. And in the process of doing that, I skipped way over to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and dealt with some things at the end of David's life uh, concerning his son Absalom when he had a civil war and tried to take over the kingdom. But I want to go back now to First Samuel chapter 18 and just begin to start going through some of the things in David's life. I'm still going to have to skip through a lot of things because there's just too much detail. But there are some traits in David that are such godly qualities that are missing from people today that I think it's worth noting this and making mention of it. So in First Samuel chapter 18 is after... He killed Goliath and then all of the Israelites rose up and chased the Philistines and I mean they just totally defeated the Philistines. Chapter 18 starts talking about the results of this and the first thing it talks about is that Saul took David and made David stay with him and wouldn't let him go home anymore uh, to his father but he took David and made him like a personal assistant. And it also recounts Jonathan and David and how that uh, Jonathan's heart was just knit unto David. And he gave David his armor, his sword, everything, and honored him. And I mean, the story between David and Jonathan is a tremendous story. I really hadn't got time to develop it. But that's something that you ought to read. Matter of fact, David, after Jonathan was killed in battle, Jonathan, David said of Jonathan that his love for Jonathan past the love for women. That's not talking about some type of homosexual relationship. It's not. It's just saying that he loved Jonathan in a pure, godly type of way. There was no physical contact. It wasn't some sexual perversion or something. It was just talking about that it was a supernatural love that existed between David and Jonathan. So I'm not going to teach on all of that, but David and Jonathan... Were knit together, and I mean Jonathan laid his life down on a number of occasions to defend David. So that's also in this eighteenth chapter. And then it says in verse six, First Samuel eighteen six, and it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward." You know, this is a major turning point right here. Up until this time, Saul had loved David. The very first few verses here in this chapter talk about that he wouldn't even let him go home. He wanted David to be with him. He loved him. But when he heard the people praising David and ascribing to David more victories than what he had, Saul became jealous of David. And that's why he came against him and tried to kill David on multiple occasions is because of pride. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 says, Only by pride comes contention. And whether you realize it or not, all contention, all strife, all variance between people is all about pride. I've got a teaching on this entitled uh, Self-Centeredness, the Source of All Grief. Some of you may not be relating and you may be saying, Well, pride's not my problem. And yet, man, I'm a very angry person. Whether you realize it or not, pride is your problem. Pride has been misdefined, and we just think it's arrogance. But pride in its simplest terms is self-centeredness. And if you are an angry, bitter, hurt person, you are a very self-centered person. If you are a shy, timid person, you are a very self-centered person. (laughs) And I know that didn't bless some of you. And some of you are thinking, no way, that's not true. Yes way, it is true. I was a super insecure, timid person. Now, I had certain people like my family and real close friends that I felt comfortable around. But you put me into a place where, you know, I didn't know the people and stuff. And I guarantee you, I had a fear of man. And it was because I was so thinking about myself and thinking, what are they going to say about me? I had a deathly fear of talking in front of people because I was afraid I might say something wrong. I might stumble. I might look like a fool. I might make a fool of myself. You know what all that is? Self-centeredness. You're thinking about yourself. So anyway, I could just go on and on with this. I've got at least, I don't even know, but it's hours of teaching on self-centeredness, the source of all grief. But this is exactly what happened with Saul right here. It was because of jealousy. It was pride, it says in james three sixteen, where envying and strife is there's confusion in every evil work when you get into pride, when you get into envying, and you won't want what somebody else has had, you're jealous of them. You open up a door to every evil work, and you can see it right here with Saul, and in the next verse, it says in verse ten, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied. In the midst of the house, and David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David, even to the wall with it, and David avoided out of his presence twice. This jealousy and rage drove Saul to literally try and kill David out of no other motivation than the fact that he was jealous of him. Self-centered. He wanted the acclaim, the recognition that was going to David. He wanted it for himself. And I'm telling you that the only reason you're bitter and having the problems that you're having is because of your own self-centeredness and that you can't rejoice with somebody else at their promotion. Instead, you're jealous of them. Amen. You know, I know that there's a lot of people that get offended when I say these things, but I'm saying them to help you. I'm telling you, you make a miserable person when it's all about you. It is so much better. Jesus said that it's in losing our life that we really find life. It's when we lay down our life for others that we that we get life. It's counterintuitive. It's different than what this world is saying. But you can see it right here in Saul. You can see what it led him to an attempted murder. And in the latter part of this chapter, somebody came and told Saul that his daughter... Uh, was in love with David. And so when he saw this, he gave his oldest daughter to another man. Just in case David felt the same way about her, he did this to hurt David. And eventually, then it was told him that his youngest daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And so um, Saul said, I'll give Michael to David and she'll be a snare to him. Now, there's not a lot of explanation given, but we know by the fact that Saul had already tried to kill David twice. He had given his oldest daughter to another man just to hurt David. Uh, It appears that Saul did this as punishment for David. And so without having all of the background information, apparently Michael must have been a mess. She must have been a spoiled brat or had some severe problems because Saul said she will be a snare unto David. And when this was proposed to David that all right, uh, Saul is going to let you have his daughter to be your wife, but here's what he wants as a dowry. You have to go out and kill a hundred of the Philistines, our enemies, and bring uh, in proof that they're dead, and then I will give you my daughter. He thought that by doing that, that David would get himself killed. But instead, David went out and did it and brought it back. And so he got Michael as his daughter, and um, so she became his wife. And apparently, Michael and David really did love each other. And so that's made David not only the one who was anointed to be king, but now he was the son-in-law to the king and therefore kind of a successor in the line of succession. In the 19th chapter, you see Saul's jealousy for against David just continuing and getting worse and worse. And it was so much so that David literally had to escape out of his presence. He used Jonathan here to help him and preserve his life. And in the 20th chapter... Jonathan and David made it a covenant. And Jonathan was the one who was in the line of succession to take over from his father Saul. And yet he said, I know, David, that God has given you the kingdom and that you're going to reign. And when you sit on the throne, I want to be next to you. I want to be serving you and helping you. You know, this is such a tremendous uh, thing on Jonathan's part because this guy could have seen, he could have seen David the same way that his father did as a threat to the kingdom. Instead, Jonathan was willing to let David take the kingdom and just let Jonathan serve him. Jonathan was a great man. And we didn't read this, but over in the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel, Jonathan went out and won a huge battle against the Philistines. And he had a perfect heart. I mean, it was supernatural the way he did it because he relied upon God. Jonathan would have been a great king. But because of his father's rebellion against God, Jonathan did not succeed and did not become the next king. Instead, he died with his father in battle. And here's another lesson that you can learn from all of this, and that is that Saul, when he rebelled at God and when he had the kingdom taken from him, it not only affected him, but it affected all of his children. Jonathan died in battle with him along with a couple of other of his children. And then Ishbosheth, his son, took over the kingdom for seven years, but he didn't prosper and eventually was beheaded and um, lost his life all because of what his father had done. You need to recognize that your actions affect not only you, but they'll affect your family. They will affect people in your community. They will affect people in your church that know you. It's just a totally wrong concept to think that, you know, well, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. That is not true. Every one of us have influence on other people, and you can see that in the life of Saul. And so anyway, I'm going to summarize some things. Because I hadn't got time to go through each detail. But eventually it got so bad that Saul tried to kill David in his own bed at home. And David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, knew her father and said, If you don't escape tonight, you're going to die. And so David slipped out of a window. There were people from Saul watching his house. He slipped out of a window and escaped. And uh, Saul's daughter, David's wife, Michael put a image in the bed, pillows in the bed, and made it look like David was laying in the bed. And when the messengers came to try and get David and kill him, she said he's sick. So this bought him some time. The messengers went back and told Saul that he was sick. And Saul said, kill him right there in the bed. So by the time they got back and found out that they were deceived by Michael, David had time to escape. And as a punishment against David, Saul, his father-in-law took Michael and gave her to another man to be his wife. Boy, you talk about um, boy having bad things happen. Since David had been anointed to be king, he had slain Goliath and that was good. But since that time, the king had tried to kill him twice with a javelin. He had tried to kill him by making him go out and kill a hundred of the Philistines, hoping that would kill him. He gave him his daughter thinking that she's going to be a pain And he had done all of these things. Finally, he took David's wife and gave her to another man just to add hurt and insult to this. You know, most people would have looked at this as justification for David fighting back and overcoming Saul. And anyway, there's just story after story here. David actually went back to the priest and got some showbread. Jesus uses this example in the 21st chapter uh, first Samuel Jesus quoted that in the New Testament to show that man was not made for the Sabbath But the Sabbath was made for man And then David just began a series of running from Saul for his life And the scriptures here I've tried to figure this out I've even read commentaries and people guess at it But I can't find out exactly the length of time involved here But I suspect that it was somewhere at least around 13 years most people believe David was about 17 when he killed Goliath and over in Second um, Samuel chapter 5 it says David was 30 years old when he finally took over the kingdom and that was at Saul's death. So you subtract that 17 years from 30. It was around 13 years after David was anointed to be king that instead of things getting better, He just had problem after problem. Saul trying to kill him, taking his wife from him, chasing him. The armies surrounded him. One time the armies of Saul had David completely surrounded. And all of a sudden they got a message that the Philistines had invaded the land and Saul had to break off his pursuit of David and go defend his country and stuff. And God saved his life. It got so bad that eventually... Uh David was, this is in the 24th chapter. Let me just read some of this. It says in verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So here was Saul. He was hot or whatever. He went in to cover his feet. I'm not totally sure what that means, but it it appears to me that he was asleep or something because David came up and cut off a portion of his robe. If he would have been awake, seems to me like he would have been able to notice that. But he was in this cave covering his feet. David and his men were hiding in the sides of the cave. And look at what happened here. It says, The man of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe. First of all, let me just say in this fourth verse, there is no scripture in the Bible that says God would deliver Saul into his hand and and David could do with him whatever he wanted to So it's possible that this was some kind of a prophecy or something that somebody gave him, but it's not recorded in Scripture. It's also possible that they just interpreted some stuff that since he was anointed to be king, that they supposed this meant he could do whatever he wanted to. But apparently David didn't share their uh, opinion at all. They wanted to kill him. All David did was go up and cut off a part of his robe And then it says in verse 5, "...and it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt." Now again, I was teaching previous about David being a man after God's own heart. And I made the point that this doesn't mean that you're never going to make a mistake or do something wrong, but your heart overall is after God. Sometimes you can be swayed by people, but if your heart is right, God will deal with you based on your heart and give you grace when it comes to your actions. Well, this is one of those things that everybody was wanting David to kill Saul. And he didn't do that, but he did do something that normally he wouldn't have done. He did something to humiliate Saul. He cut off a portion of his robe showing that, you know, your life was in my hand. I could have killed you. It was a way of, you know, getting back at Saul. And he did it, but then after he had done it, his heart smote him. And I'm telling you, if you got a right heart, If your heart is really after God, when you get off the path and begin to deviate, your heart will let you know it. Here his heart smote him because he had a heart after God. And when uh, Saul woke up, he left the cave and David followed him out into the mouth of the cave and fell down on his face before Saul. And he said, why are you listening to other people? Let me just read this to you in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And in verse 9 it says, And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou man's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord had delivered uh, delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. So here's David showing respect and honor to the very man who's trying to kill him. Boy, you talk about lessons to learn from David. This is tremendous. And some people think, well, if I was to do that, people would just run over me. I've got to defend myself. I've got to punish people. I've got to stand up and fight for myself. Did you know if there wasn't a God who said that He takes count of everything that goes on and that if you will submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, that He will lift you up. If there wasn't a God who intervened in the affairs of men, then it would be true that when people treat us badly, we have to defend ourselves and fight back. But there is a God who has promised that He will honor those who honor Him. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and verse 30. And if you would just cool your jets and show respect and do what's right and let God defend you, God will take care of you better than you could ever take care of yourself. This is one of the great lessons of David. Did you know David in many ways would have been absolutely justified to kill Saul? Because back then, that's the way that kingdoms changed hands. You just went in and conquered and you killed and took over. Nobody would have blamed him. Plus, they could have looked at it as self-defense. Saul was trying to kill him. And so he could have killed Saul in self-defense. There wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. Plus, he could have done it out of vengeance because Saul had taken his wife and given her to another man. You know, he had multiple reasons why nobody would have blamed David if he would have killed Saul. Plus, Saul was now tormented and he was an ungodly leader. The nation would have been much better off under David's leadership than it was under Saul's leadership. There was just multiple reasons why he could have killed Saul, and yet David humbled himself and showed honor and respect and said, I am not going to stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointing. You know, I learned this lesson a long time ago in many, many different ways. God has taught me this, but I remember one time that my youngest son, uh, Peter, he didn't talk until he was about three years old. And anyway, we were trying to get him to talk, and we were coming out of a bathroom that had a really strong spring on that door, And he tried to open the door by himself. And, of course, he put his foot up on the door and was pulling on the doorknob. And it was never going to open that way. And he looked up at me, and I knew what he wanted. I knew he wanted me to help him open the door. But uh, I was trying to get him to talk. Plus, he had his hands wrapped around that door just like this. And it it was a hard door to open. And so for me open it with his hands around I would have had to have squeezed his hands. It would have hurt him and I basically just told him, I said Peter, I can't do anything until you let go. And as soon as I said that God spoke to me and he said, that's the same with me. I can't do anything about the people who come against you until you let go. You quit trying to vindicate yourself and defend yourself and turn it over to me. He says vengeance is mine. I will repay And I could literally spend two or three days giving you testimonies of people who have done things to me, said things about me, lied about me. Uh, I've had people burn my books and do different things. And I've had these very people, because I didn't defend myself and I didn't get into strife and start arguing with them, I've had God supernaturally reconcile these differences. One guy who had done me a lot of damage, I was at a full gospel businessmen's meeting, and my mentor, Joe Nay, was speaking and for five days Joe spoke morning and night and every single session he had me stand up and he says, You are so blessed to have Andrew here in Colorado Springs and he would have me come up and share a little bit and give a testimony or do something. And I had not I'd heard about this man who hated me and had had people burn my books and say I was a cult and not to have anything to do with me. I'd heard about it, but I'd never meant this man. And anyway, the last day of that convention, after five days, I was standing up there giving a testimony. And this guy came up in front of, I don't know, five or six hundred people and started saying, I have hated you. I've told people you're of the devil. And he says, everywhere I go, I meet somebody who's been saved or baptized in the Holy Spirit or healed because of your ministry. And then I come to this convention, and this is the fifth day that... Joe has talked about you, and he just repented and got on his knees and literally grabbed hold of my boots and started begging me for forgiveness in front of all of these people. My point in saying that is that, you know what, I didn't defend myself. I never criticized this guy, and God supernaturally took care of it. And I actually became a friend with this guy. We went over to his house and ate, and we went to church together, and we became friends after that. I had another nationally known minister that told everybody I was the slickest cult since Jim Jones. Told people in their church they could not use any of my material. They had to burn it, get rid of it. And um, they did this publicly. Affected a lot of people. And you know what? I have given money to their church when they needed money. I have blessed them. I have ministered in the same conference where they were ministering and I've never said anything against them. And it was just this last summer that they called me up. And uh, actually, we were on a television program together. Uh, We were both being interviewed on TBN. And they said that they watched me every day on television. They really got a lot out of it. And this last summer, they called me up. And we went out to eat. We've changed phone numbers. We've become good friends. (laughs) Amen. And you know what? I've never defended myself. God put it back together. I'm telling you, this is one of the things about David that is so powerful right here that he was honoring the very person who was trying to kill him, who had taken his wife and given her to another man, a man who was just totally messed up. Everything was wrong, and yet David honored him when everybody else around him said, Kill him. Don't show him any mercy. You know, let me show you how that happens In Psalms chapter 57... The subscript, this isn't in all Bibles, but in my Bible, in some Bibles it's there. And here's the subscript under the title of Psalms 57. It says, To the chief musician Altasketh Mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You know what that does? That means that this psalm was written by David about that instance in the cave that we just read about in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And I'm not going to take time to read the whole psalm, but let me just drop down to verse 7. It says here in verse 7, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Now, this was written when he was in the cave. What's it talking about? The word fixed right here is the Hebrew word K-U-W-N. coon, I think is the way you say it. And it means to be established or prepared. Matter of fact, this exact same word was translated over in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14. And there it's talking about Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. And it says that in the first two years of his reign, he sought the Lord and God made him to prosper. But then he did evil is what it says in 2 Chronicles twelve fourteen. But he did evil because he prepared not his heart. seek the Lord. That word prepared in 2 Chronicles 12, 14 is the same word as fixed right here in Psalms chapter 57 verse 7. And so by putting these together you can see that to prepare your heart means to fix your heart or establish is another way that it is translated. And here's the point that I'm getting at. David said his heart was fixed. It was prepared. It was established. When you prepare something you have to do it in advance. You know, if you prepare supper for somebody, you don't wait until they come and then you prepare it. No, it means it's before you eat. It has to be done before you eat. There is preparation. It has to be done in advance. You have to establish your heart or fix your heart in advance on what you will do and what you won't do. Man, I could preach on this for a long time. As a matter of fact, I have. I've got a tape series or a CD series that's entitled "How to How to Prepare Your Heart," and this is a tremendous truth. But you can literally fix your heart. You know, this word "fix," uh, it also means to set, like when you uh, pour concrete and then it sets up or it becomes fixed, immovable. It starts out pliable, but over a period of time, it dries out and then it becomes fixed, hardened, established. And this is what it's talking about. You can fix your heart. You can put your heart in such a direction that, you know what, you are committed to God and you are not going to go to the right or to the left. This is a great truth that I'm talking about and some people haven't learned this. I don't know anybody that just wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I think I'm going to go sin. I think I'm going to go commit adultery. I'm going to quit serving God. I don't know anybody who wakes up to do that. But there are people who wake up and they don't fix their heart. They don't establish their heart. They don't make decisions and say, you know what? Today, this is the day that the Lord has made and I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to glorify God. My heart is fixed and I'm going to go in the ways of God. There's a lot of people that don't do that. And so every time a temptation comes their way, it's up in the air. It's debatable about whether or not they're going to submit to it. There are some people that when they wake up in the morning, they don't want to rebel at God, but they don't have any guarantee that they're still going to be serving God by that time the next day. But you can fix your heart. You can establish your heart, prepare it in a way that, you know what, you just can't deviate from where your heart is. And this is what uh, David is talking about. When he was in this cave and Saul came in, all of David's men said, Kill him. This is the day that God has spoken to you about. Take his life. And yet David said, My heart is fixed. He couldn't do it because he had already determined that he was not going to make God's prophecy about him being king come to pass through his own power. He was going to wait on God to bring it to pass. He was going to wait on Saul to die of natural causes or die in battle or something, but he was not going to do so. He was not going to kill. Saul to be able to take over the kingdom. He had already fixed his heart. And because of it, he couldn't do it. And even the little bit that he did just to embarrass Saul by cutting off a part of his robe, that he he even had his heart smite him over that and he wound up falling on his face and talking to Saul and, and um you know honoring him in the midst of this situation. This is a great principle right here and that is that you can establish your heart, fix your heart in a way that you just cannot go against God. And I know to some of you, this is a brand new wrinkle in your brain. This is a brand new thought that you've never had before. There's many of you that don't want to rebel at God. You don't want to go against Him. You don't want to commit adultery. You don't want to steal. You don't want to not be faithful. You don't want to lie or whatever it is. But you aren't committed to not doing it. And your lack of commitment means that it is possible for you. And let me just say some things. Some of you may disagree and you're entitled to your opinion, but I'm not going to agree with you. we would both be wrong. I'm telling you, this is the truth. That my heart is fixed on the things of God. It's fixed on serving God and seeking God and doing and accomplishing what God wants me to do. And it's fixed. It's established. I've prepared it. I've been doing this for decades and I can tell you today, some of you are going to disagree with this, but hear me out before you reject it. I can tell you today that it is impossible, impossible, for me to commit adultery today, to just turn on God, to steal money, to become a crook. Those things are impossible for me to do. And I know some of you are thinking, "Oh, you don't, you you think too highly of yourself. You you are capable of anything that anybody else is capable of." I, I agree. Ultimately, but today I'm not because my heart is fixed. Now, if I was to turn from the Lord and quit seeking Him and start indulging myself, I don't know how long it would take. It might take a year or two years or I don't know how long it would take. I don't want to find out. But eventually, I could change my heart. I could get to where I could go out and commit adultery or do anything that anybody else would do. But I can't do it today because my heart is fixed. Man, that is a powerful, powerful truth. And that is exactly what we see David doing right here in 1 Samuel chapter 24 is that David's heart was fixed and because of it, he just could not. Even though everybody was telling him, kill Saul, nobody would have criticized him. Everybody would have applauded. He would have been the hero. He couldn't do it because his heart was fixed. Man, that is a tremendous, tremendous passage of Scripture. And this is one of the lessons that I learned from David is to just fix your heart upon God, do what God told you to do, and let God handle the things. You know, again, in my life, I have lived this the best I can. I'm not saying I've done it well, but I have not taken out vengeance. I haven't fought back at people that have done me bad things. And every single time, I mean every single time, over a period of time, sometimes it takes a while But every single time, God has defended me. God has promoted me. I have come out smelling like a rose when there is no reason for it to happen other than the fact that God will take care of you better than you would take care of yourself. I've actually told people before that if you go and defend yourself, then God won't defend you. You have to let God be the one who defends you that promotes you and things like this. And if you will do that, God can take care of it much, much better than you can. Another thing I want to point out about David is right before he came became king, he actually got driven from the land of Israel because Saul was just pursuing him so hard that he finally said, I'm going to perish if I stay in the land of Israel. So he actually had to go to the Philistines. And he was living among them and all of the Philistines marshalled themselves together to come and fight against Israel. And David actually took his man and um, it says here in the 29th and 30th chapter of 1 Samuel that David was going to go fight with Israel. Now, to me, that doesn't look like that was appropriate. And I don't know if David was just acting like he was going to do this to keep up the the guys that he had going. For instance, with uh, Achish one time, he was he was staying with Achish, the king of Gath. And this is, you know, where uh, Goliath was from and all of his brothers. And so David was the one that had killed their champion. And David and his men, there was about 600 of his men, and they were literally living in the very place where Goliath was from. Everybody knew about David. And they had heard these songs about Saul has slain his thousands, David is ten thousands. And because of this, the king of Gath began to start eyeing David like, uh, you know, is this guy here? What's his purpose? And he began to question him. And David had to actually act like he was insane. And he let the spit drip down off of his beard and he started scribbling on the wall. And you know, I've read some commentaries that they, uh, similar to like American Indians, I've heard this for sure about American Indians, but they said back in these days that when a person was crazy, They believed it was a totally demonic thing and that if you did anything to them, that those demons would come into you. So they just gave lunatics a wide berth and would basically let you do whatever. Well, in order to get out of this situation, David actually acted like he was crazy and began to start acting crazy. And he wasn't. He did that just to save his life and the life of the men that were with him. I personally believe that in 1 Samuel chapter 29, where it looked like he was going to go fight against his own people, the Jews, I personally don't believe he would have because he was anointed to be the king and I don't think it would have happened. I think he was doing something similar with what he did with Achis when he acted like he was crazy. But anyway, my point is that after they got back, the the Philistines rejected him. And they said, David could use this as an opportunity to turn on the Philistines, destroy them, help win the battle for Israel, and reconcile himself to Saul by doing this. And so the lords of the Philistines would not let David and his men go to battle. And so as they came back to their city of Ziklag that they had been given, it turned out that the Amalekites had invaded the country. They knew that all of the Philistines had marshaled their forces. They were going to war with Israel, And the Amalekites took advantage of it, and they came into Ziklag, the city that David and his 600 men lived in, and they just burnt the whole thing. They took every single woman and child hostage, and they had escaped, and they were headed back uh, to their own land. And so here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and in verse 3 it says, So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. You know, that's an amazing passage of scripture. I imagine most of you have probably experienced this sometime in your life that something so tragic happened that you just, you wept and then finally you just can't weep anymore. I've done that. And this is expressing their great grief that they've had. And then in verse 5, it says, And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So here's David. And again, I've I mentioned this earlier, but he was approximately 17 years old when Samuel came and anointed him to be king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It was over in 2 Samuel chapter 1 where David actually became king. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that he was 30 years old when that happened. So if he was 17 when he was anointed to be king... That means this is 13 years later. This is the instance just a day or two before he became king. So this is approximately 13 years that David had been anointed to be king. He had been persecuted, being tried to be killed. He had been surrounded. He had had his wife taken from him. He had just had problem after problem after problem. He had to literally flee his own country and live with the enemy in a foreign country And then on top of everything else, when they came back, it turns out that the Amalekites had burnt his city. He lost every possession that he had, all of his wives, all of his children, and all of his men, all of these guys. They had just lost everything. If you were the person who had been operating in integrity, you could have killed your enemy, you could have ended this thing, and yet you had just been faithful, faithful, faithful. It had drug on for 13 years. And instead of getting better, it just kept getting worse. And now he had lost everything. And on top of his own personal loss of losing his wives and his own children and all of his possessions that he had gathered in this foreign land, now the guys that were his army were speaking of killing him and blaming him as if it was his fault that all of this had happened. Boy, there's a great lesson in this. And I guarantee you every one of us is going to be pushed to a placed where it looks like why even try anymore let's just give up that is not the right thing to do david in this terrible situation which i don't have the words to describe how bad it was but it was bad and it says the very last phrase of verse six but david encouraged himself in the lord his god boy this is powerful god has used this to speak to me this is spoken to me i couldn't tell you how many times. I've been in situations where in the natural, it looks like you ought to just quit. You ought to just. When are you going to admit that you're beat? When are you going to say, I'm defeated? When are you going to just quit? I have referred to this passage of Scripture, and David was in a worse place than it, I've ever been in, and yet he was able to encourage himself and the Lord. Very few people are able to do this, or very few people do it. They depend upon somebody else. They're always calling somebody else, praying that God will send somebody else to them. Somebody will do something. And they're always looking for uh, you know, help from some other source. But we have to get to where we encourage ourselves in the Lord. How do you do that? Well, there's a lot of things. Right here in the very next verse, it says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought hither the ephod to David." The ephod was this breastplate that the priest wore and there were stones on it that represented all of the children of Israel and they would inquire and somehow or another these stones somehow or another would would give an answer. God could communicate through this. I don't understand it completely but what this would be comparable to in our day and time would be the Word of God. God has given us the Word and this is how He speaks to us and so David started inquiring of the Lord. He started going to the Lord and what he did, he took the Word of God and he began to encourage himself. And there's many times that I've done this exact same thing. When everything in the natural you look at is bad, I just go to the Word and I start remembering the promises that God gave me. And I encourage myself in the Lord. Also, another benefit that I think a lot of Christians do not take advantage of, the Scripture says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, that whosoever speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. It says if you speak in tongues, you edify yourself. The word edify means to build up. In Jude chapter 1 verse 20, it says, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And that's talking about speaking in tongues. When you speak in tongues, you are building yourself up on your most holy faith. Now, I know there's a lot of people that don't understand that, and you think, well, what does speaking in tongues have to do with anything? Most people look at that as just total gibberish. It doesn't mean anything. What's, I can't believe that speaking in tongues would make a difference. One of the very reasons that speaking in tongues is so powerful is because it doesn't make sense to your natural mind. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter four, uh, 14 that when you speak in tongues, other people will say that you're foolish, and they'll criticize you. It does not make sense to your natural mind. And this is one of the reasons it's so powerful. Because if you speak in tongues and do it more than just, you know, one phrase, one sentence, just something to kind of let off a little steam, but if you speak in tongues deliberately for 20, 30 minutes, an hour at a time, you do something like that, you have to deal with your thoughts that this is just crazy. I don't understand what I'm saying. What is the point of this? It's useless. Why do this? If you continue to speak in tongues over a prolonged period of time, it forces you to get into your most holy faith. It doesn't make sense to your mind. It says 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse uh, 14. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. You don't know what you're saying when you're speaking in tongues. And because of that there is this tendency to just sit there and shut it down and not do it because what's the benefit? It takes faith to believe that just like it says right here uh, in verse 2, 1 Corinthians fourteen two, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto man, but unto God, for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. And in verse 4, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. And so when you speak in tongues, you are edifying, building up yourself, promoting spiritual growth. In order to pray in tongues over a prolonged period of time, you have to move into faith. If you continue to think thoughts like, I don't understand this, this is silly, this is foolish, you'll quit. If you continue to speak in tongues over a prolonged period of time, you edify yourself, you promote spiritual growth. You build up yourselves on your most holy faith. And so I say all of those things to say that for the New Testament believer, when you're in a situation like David was where it just looks like, man, you might as well quit and give up. It's over. You can sit there and pray in tongues and build yourself up. And I tell you, this is a resource. I believe that God is using me right now to speak to some of you. Some of you have been praying and saying, God, what do I do? Here's help coming your way. God will use people. But ultimately, you need to be like David to where you can encourage yourself in the Lord. And in the New Testament, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is one of the most important things that you could possibly do. This is God speaking to some of you today, trying to encourage you. Encourage yourself. Hold on. Tie a knot in the end of the rope. Hold on. Amen. Don't quit. Don't give up. God is going to come through and you have to be able to encourage yourself in the Lord and of course the rest of this story goes on that David and his men after he got encouraged in the Lord he took leadership and these people submitted unto him and he started pursuing the Amalekites and they caught uh, they caught the Amalekites off guard they completely destroyed the Amalekites they got back every woman every child all of their livestock they didn't lose a single life God blessed them And in just hours, they were back on top and God had prospered them. And of course, as the story goes on, in the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul and his sons went out and fought the Philistines and they died. So here was David back in Ziklag and a person escaped from the battle. The Israelites were fighting the Philistines and he brought news that Saul had been killed And that now David was the one that they were looking for to become king. And so in just a matter of hours, after David encouraged himself in the Lord, the opportunity that he had been waiting on for 13 years came to pass. And I'm telling you by the Spirit of the Lord that there are some of you that are contemplating quitting. But you know, it's like Peter said, where else can you go? Who else has the words of everlasting life? You don't have anywhere else to go. You just need to stand and believe God. I'm telling you, if you will stand your ground and not give up and encourage yourself in the Lord, this could be your breakthrough. When it seems like it's impossible to bear any more, then you have 1 Corinthians 10.13 kick in and you become a victor by default. Amen. Just because you outlasted the devil. So it goes on that in Second uh, Samuel, David was crowned king. But here's another great lesson to learn from David. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures, but this is found... In the first few chapters of 2 Samuel, that when David became king, he'd been waiting for 13 years. He didn't just become king over all of Israel at one time. It was only the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin that made him king, and the northern 10 tribes went with Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son. And Abner, the general under Saul, uh, he survived the battle and he took Ishbosheth Saul's son. It's hard for me to say that, but um, he took Saul's son and made him king and he ruled over the ten northern kingdoms. So it didn't just come to pass automatically or all at once. And this is another thing that I've learned through David and that I've also seen come to pass in my life. And that is that you just don't step into the perfect will of God and the complete vision that he's given you for your life all at once. It's steps and stages. David could have taken his armies and he could have fought against the northern ten tribes and he could have tried to force this to come to pass. But again, David was consistent with the way he had been ever since God first anointed him. He was letting God defend him. He was letting God promote him. He didn't try and kill Saul when he could have and take the kingdom and he didn't try and kill Saul's son and take over the kingdom. He just patiently waited and over a period of time, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, began to lose favor with the people in the north. And actually, Abner, the general that was under Saul originally, and then became Ishbosheth's uh, general, Abner came to David and said, "I'll bring the kingdom back to you. I have influence. I can do this." And so uh, g- David just waited on God, and God supernaturally united the kingdom and brought. Uh, the entire kingdom together. And the way it was done was not necessarily God's will. It was God's will for the kingdom to come totally under David. But there were men that went in and killed Ishbosheth as he was asleep and brought his head in a basket to David. And you know what? David, even though he wanted the results that these men made happen, David was not pleased with it and he says, Man, you deserve to die because you took a man who was asleep in his own bed and murdered him and David turned around and had those men executed and when people heard this they immediately recognized that David wasn't the one who had Ishbosheth assassinated and uh, they loved him all the more for it and so again there's there's so many things that we can learn in here but one of the things that you can learn is that you know what the ends do not justify the means David wanted the kingdom, the entire kingdom, all 12 tribes to come under his dominion, but he was not into killing Ishbosheth over this. God was already bringing this thing together. They did not have to do it the way it was done. Nonetheless, God used this. The kingdom came under David, but uh, there's a right and a wrong way to accomplish things. So David, now that he had the entire nation, he went and took the city of Jerusalem, which at that time was still ruled over by the Jebusites. When Joshua conquered the land, he did not subdue everybody. There were pockets of the people in that land that they never conquered. And the Jebusites in Jerusalem were one of them. And so um, David went up to fight against Jerusalem. He wanted that city. And he said, whoever finds a way into this city to open the gates and to overcome this city, I'm going to make them the general over my army. And so Joab was the guy that took some of his people and he went up. Joab was actually a cousin of David and he went up and he took the city of David and he became the general. And Joab was an awesome general. You know, I don't have time to go through all the specifics, but Joab did a lot of good things for David. He caused him to conquer and to win every time he turned around. But Joab was ruthless. Matter of fact, Joab killed Abner... The previous general under Saul, he killed him because David was going to make Abner the ruler or the general over all of his armies. So Joab killed him. And then later on, towards the end of his life, uh, God, I mean, David was going to replace Joab because of some of the cruel, terrible things he did. Joab actually killed Absalom, David's son. And David had given specific instructions to everyone not to kill him, but have mercy on him. Well, Joab went against that. And you know what? Joab was probably right. I don't think it would have been healthy to have let Absalom continue to live. He had tried to cause a civil war and split the whole nation and kill his father. It was probably the best thing to execute uh, Absalom. But nonetheless, it was completely against the instructions of David the king. And Joab... He had, you know, he was one of these guys that is just a bottom line type thing. And if he saw something that needed to be done, he was ruthless. He would kill people. He not only killed Absalom, but he killed Amasa, which was another person that David had put in charge over the armies. Joab killed a number of people, not just in battle, which in a sense is justifiable when you're in a war. You can look at that nearly like self-defense. But I mean, Joab murdered people. He was ruthless. And he was so effective, though, in his military campaigns that in a sense, David was held hostage by Joab. Joab was so beneficial to him that David didn't like what he did and he just basically allowed Joab to go unhindered and uh, without correction. And because of it, at the end of his life, David, he told his son Solomon, he says, "...when you take over the kingdom..." He says, you make sure that you deal with Shimei, and we'll talk about him later. But also, he said, make sure that you don't let Joab come to his death in a natural way. This man deserves to be executed for the terrible, hideous things that he did. And so David never did. He was intimidated by Joab. And he never did really... Exercised judgment and correction on Joab. he was held hostage because Joab was so beneficial to him, and he actually asked his son to go ahead and make sure that Joab was executed for the terrible things that he's done. To me, this is one of the lessons that I learned from David that's a negative lesson, something I learned what not to do. You know, I've learned that nobody is indispensable. I'm not indispensable. You aren't indispensable. Nobody who works for you or nobody around you is indispensable. And if you see something that you know is wrong and that needs to be corrected, do not be timid. Do not be intimidated. You need to do what needs to be done in order to correct that situation. If you're in a position of leadership, this is one of the things that sets a leader apart from just people that are followers. You have to take responsibility and you have to face up and make hard decisions. David needed to make some decisions and deal with this general Joab who caused him a lot of trouble. Also, another thing about Joab is that when David committed adultery with Bathsheba over in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he used Joab to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And you know, this is another thing that you can learn from David is that you don't need people around you that are just yes men and that will help you to get by with adultery and murder. Now you need people around you that have your heart and that are loyal to you and things like that, but you do not need people that will help you do the wrong thing and just will never, uh, you know, stand up if something is wrong and things like that. This is one of the lessons that I learn. And you know, I'm Going through some of these things myself, and I'm having to deal with it. But I've had to get people around me, and instead of just yes to everything, uh, you need to get people that are different than you, people that will stand up and tell you if they disagree. Now, there still needs to be a respect and an honor, and I'm not saying you just encourage chaos. But at the same time, you need people around you that are different. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is that when they select people to be on their staff, they pick people that are just like them. And what that does, that will double your strengths and it will also double your weaknesses because they will tend to have the same blind spots that you do. You need people around you who are different. And when people around you are different, there's going to be some friction. There's going to be times that you butt heads and that you don't agree on things. But it actually makes you stronger if you can love each other and learn to cooperate and get along. See, I learn all of these things through David. There's management styles right here. He was very good in some ways. He inspired people. He motivated people to get behind him, to stand with him. There was these three guys. At one time, he was being uh, you know, um, persecuted and pursued by Saul. And David just made this statement, Oh, that I had water from the well in Bethlehem. Because they were cut off from there. And these three men put their lives at risk and broke through the enemy lines and brought David back a cup of water from that well. And you know what? It's wonderful to have people that are committed to you. But at the same time, you need some people around you that won't help you do the things that David did. Some of the evil things. So there's a balance between all of this. You can learn about the leadership skills of King David. Now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is where David brought up the ark of the Lord. Of course, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, Moses was approximately his his day when he made the ark and the tabernacle and all of these things was about 400 years prior to the time of David and the tabernacle was 400 years old it had fallen into disrepair and the ark had actually been uh you know in a place I think it was in Shiloh and it had remained there for many many years it had been taken captive by the Philistines during a battle over in 1 Samuel and uh, so anyway it had been in this place for a long period of time and david set a tent in jerusalem the city that he had uh, taken for his uh, royal city and he intended to build a temple there but uh, the lord told him that no he wasn't the one to build it that it was son his son solomon would do it but david went ahead and set up a tabernacle a tent there and intended to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So this is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in verse 1 it says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baile of Judah to bring up from thence the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubs. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was in Gibeah. So that's, uh, I think I said Shiloh, but here it was. It was in Gibeah accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of uh, fir wood, even on harps and on psalmsries and on timbrels and, and on comets and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah unto this day, which means the breach of Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come unto me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obedidim the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obadiah the Gittite uh, three months, and the Lord blessed Obadiah and his household. Now this is this instance right here. For those of you that haven't ever thought about this, this looks harsh. But previously in the Old Testament, in this tabernacle, there was a uh, there was an outer court. There was a huge area, and then inside of it sat a tent. And this tent was divided into two parts. And there was a a curtain that separated these two parts of this main tent. And there was the holy place and then the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant went. And these cherubims over it were warrior angels. And the symbolism of all of this was that there was a separation between holy God and unholy man. And when Jesus died, the veil of this temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And it symbolized that this separation between a holy God and unholy man is now gone because Jesus took our sins and paid for our sins. And now we can have direct access to God. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, it had to be enforced that men needed to recognize that you could just not approach to a holy God. None of us are worthy. As it says in Romans three twenty three, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. I tell you this there's a lot of people today that don't understand and appreciate these things, and they talk about God in a way that there is no reverence for him, and they think that, you know, everybody's okay and God's going to accept us, but God is a holy God, and the reason that we have the grace and the access to God today is because a price was paid. Romans three twenty three says the wages of sin is death or excuse me, that's Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There had to be a price that was paid, and before that price was paid by Jesus, it was strictly enforced that you could not just come into the presence of God. When the tabernacle was set up, they actually had a rope that they put around the high priest ankle when he went in to make an atonement on this altar because if he hadn't done everything just right, if there was any wrong in him, if he hadn't purified his heart and stuff, God would smite him dead. And they couldn't go in and get him, so they kept this rope around him with the end of it trailing out uh, beyond that curtain so that if God struck him dead, they could just drag the body out because nobody could go in and get him. You know, this was a holy God and... Uh, he had specific instructions about not approaching unto this Ark of the Covenant because it was to symbolize that you, the way unto God was not made perfect as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. And so part of this thing was that you could not carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart or on a wagon Because the thing could bounce and tip and fall over and you could have done damage to it and nobody could touch it. That's the reason that this ark had uh, these circles on each of the four corners and they put poles through there. And people were supposed to bear the ark of the covenant on these poles so that it wouldn't stumble, so that things wouldn't happen. And it was very specific. Well, David... He desired to bring in the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized the presence of God into Jerusalem and honor God. That part was good, but he didn't do it according to the pattern that God had said. And because of it, uh, sure enough, just exactly the way God told him that something would happen, the oxen stumble, the cart uh, was wobbling, the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall over, and Uzzah put his hand up there to stay it, but he just totally violated all of these instructions of God, and because of this, God struck him dead. David got very upset at that, but as you continue in this sixth chapter, it says in verse 12, it says, "...and it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of obededom. And all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obedidim the, uh, unto the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And so you can see right here that David finally uh, went back and said, God, what happened? Why didn't this work? And the Lord gave him revelation. It's because you didn't do it according to the proper order. Here in Second Samuel, it doesn't say this, but if you read this same instance over in the Chronicles account, over there, David said that the reason this happened was because they did not seek the Lord according to the proper manner. Now, there's a lot of things to learn from this, but one of them, is to learn that you know there's a lot of people today that says it doesn't matter how you seek the Lord. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim or whatever. There's only one God, and there's many paths that lead unto him and and just as long as you believe in some divine being and as long as you do your best, that's good enough. Boy, if you are paying attention to the word of God, you see that there is a proper order to seeking the Lord. David desired a good end, but because he didn't do it the proper way, a man died. And this is one of the lessons that you learn from David, and that is that there is a proper way to seek the Lord. This has direct application to us today because I have talked to many, many people and I've just had this same type of attitude come up as well. It doesn't matter the way that you get there. You know, Just as long as you believe that there's a God, I believe that God's a good God and they just choose to worship Him however they choose. That's not right. There is a right and a wrong way. Most people do not let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. But I'm telling you, if you are going to really connect with the Lord... This is the instruction manual. This is God telling us how we are to relate to Him, and we have to do it according to the pattern that God gives. That's really simple, and you wouldn't think that you'd even have to make a point out of that, but I guarantee you there's a lot of people today that have just accepted this mindset that David had right here. He wanted to do something good. The end results that he wanted was good, but he thought it doesn't really matter whether we follow the instructions of the Word of God. It doesn't matter if we do things according to the way God says. I think that this is fine. You know, a cart's faster than having people carry this. It was a long trip. It seems like it would be easier for the oxen to do it and just ride on a cart than for people to be carrying this, and so they just changed. I'm telling you, you need to accept the word of God and recognize that there's a reason why God gave this to us and we need to follow the instructions. So David finally saw that and he finally did it the way that God uh, told him to. So in verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now again, in case you don't remember, I've said some of these things, or if you aren't familiar with this passage, Michael was David's wife. It was actually Saul's daughter. Saul was the previous king, and Saul had given Michael to David to be a snare unto him, saying that this woman probably had some really bad attitudes, and he... He saw this as a punishment for David to give him his daughter. But Michael and David loved each other. And Michael actually saved David's life by hiding him and uh, you know lying to her father and giving David time to escape. And as a result, as a punishment, Saul, Michael's father, took her and gave her to another man. When David finally became king, uh, probably 13 or 14 years later, he sent and took Michael from her husband and took her back unto himself. And the scriptures doesn't give us all of the details of this, but it's obvious right here that Michael had been hurt. I mean, women during those days were treated as property and she had no choice in this matter. And, Of course, she was in love with David and taken from him and given to another man. And then she had multiple children with this other man and probably had adjusted to that lifestyle, was probably rebounding. And when David became king, he went and took her from that man and from her children and brought her back unto himself. And we don't know exactly what's going on, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to recognize that this woman had been abused, had been hurt. Uh, there's a lot of things, and as a result, she got bitter over it and She took this bitterness out on David and criticized him and It says she despised him in her heart, so David brought uh the Ark of the Covenant, set it in its place, and then it says in verse twenty in verse twenty that David returned to bless his house. Hold, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out unto David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaidens of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. In other words, this was totally sarcastic. She was not saying he was glorious. She was mocking him. And ridiculing him when it says he uncovered himself, we don 't know exactly what that means it 's possible that he took off like an outer garment, and he I believe he was still totally clothed, but it may not have been the proper way of dressing, or it says that he danced before the Lord with all of his might, and if he was kicking up his legs, who knows he may have uh, revealed something that he wasn 't supposed to reveal but anyway, Michael was criticizing him over this. And here's David's response in verse 21. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than this, and will be base in my own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of. Of them shall I be had in our honor Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. So here's Michael criticizing David for whatever reason. She just thought he had made a fool of himself, and she criticized him, came out. And David, this is one of the things that made David a man after his own heart, after God's own heart, and that was that he loved God, and he was not ashamed to show his commitment and his affection to God publicly. And he says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. He says, I did this before the Lord. And he referred to how God had blessed him. And he was not ashamed to show his love and his commitment and his worship for God in front of people. I tell you, this has direct applications. If you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, then you need to learn something right here from David. And that is... That you know why your love and your commitment to God ought to trump any other relationship. You shouldn't be a man pleaser. I've already used some of these verses, but in John chapter 5 verse 44, Jesus said, How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God alone? And I tell you, we've got people today that it's like they've never read this. It's And probably they haven't. Most people don't study the word very much. But there's people that, you know, it's like they take no benefit from this and they are intimidated by what other people think. I meet Christians all of the time that they know the truth. Like, for instance, let me just make some application. But, you know, in morality today, tolerating homosexuality is not even an issue. But, man, today the issue is you've not only got to tolerate it, you've got to promote it. You've got to actually put your stamp of approval on it. And if anybody says that it's wrong... Man, you are criticized and you are looked at as a homophobic and all of these kind of things. And so there's a lot of people that know what the Word of God says and that this is a destructive lifestyle that destroys the people. God doesn't hate homosexuals, but he hates homosexuality because it is an absolute perversion and it destroys people. There's a lot of people that know that based on the Word of God, but you are afraid to stand up and you wouldn't say it today. You know what you are exactly the opposite of David and you are the opposite of a person after God's own heart I'm not saying that we attacked anybody I don't attack anybody I love homosexuals I've got people that I know that are homosexuals and I do not treat them badly I honor them and I love them and tell them the gospel the same as I would anybody else I'm not against any of those people. I love them, but I will boldly say that this is wrong. The Scripture teaches against it. You're destroying your life. It is not good for you. It's not good for society. And I will stand up, and I will honor the Lord. You know, in a real way, that's what David did right here. I may not be bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. I may not be wearing a robe. I may not be dancing And doing all of the things that David did. But it's the exact same principle that, you know what? I am not ashamed to stand up for the Lord. God has totally changed my life. And this is one of the lessons that you can learn from David. Is that David here, he had a good desire. He tried to accomplish it. But it didn't work. A man died because he didn't do it the right way. And then he found out from the word of God what the proper way of doing it was. He brought the ark unto himself. And man, he was shouting and praising God and worshiping God. And there was people that thought he was a fool for showing that kind of an affection and commitment to God. And yet, I I tell you, the way that I look at this is instead of me being intimidated by the people who don't love God, by the people who all of their attitudes and their standards are totally wrong. Instead of me feeling strange, they ought to feel strange. I'm not the weird one. Amen. I'm the one that loves God. I'm the one that has responded to him. I'm the one that believes in the healing power of God today and that God's alive and that miracles happen. That's normal. That's the right way based on Scripture. And I shouldn't be the one that feels awkward and out of place. It ought to be other people. Amen. I know some people think, man, I'm weird. Well, I think you're weird for sitting here and letting these people that, you know, if you were to put their all of their morality in a thimble and combine it, it would be nearly empty. And let people like that, that live like animals, that have no joy in their life, the people are killing themselves, they're committing suicide, they're having to take drugs to be able to cope, and all of this, and you let them intimidate you, I'm telling you that is absolutely wrong. This is one of the lessons that I learned from David. And look at Michael, the one who criticized him. She remained childless until the day of her death. In other words, that was the end of the relationship between David. And Michael. Michael let this bitterness of the things that had happened to her and she'd had some bad things happen to her but she let it come out and she vented this bitterness and what happened? It destroyed a relationship with the man who was after God's own heart. And it cost her dearly for the rest of her life. Here's another lesson that you can learn from this situation and that is that you know what you may have had bad things happen to you but it's a choice whether you become bitter or whether you become better. And if you allow this bitterness to operate, the scripture says in the New Testament that there's a root of bitterness that springs up. It'll defile the whole body and many people will be defiled because of it. I tell you, you need to run to the Lord. You need to let God take care of this bitterness. You do not need to spew it out because it'll keep you from being fruitful the rest of your life. Man, there's just a lot of things to learn right here.